Welcome everyone to Hot Wash. I'm John Waters, a contributor here at Real Clear Defense, and I'm joined by our longtime host and producer, John Sorensen. John, how are you? John, as always, good to talk to you. We got to come up with different names, John. It's John <laughs> 1 and John 2. I'll go by Sorensen for now. Agreed. Uh, John, why don't you get us into this? I'd love to. We've got a special episode today. I'm going to go right into who he is. He's a journalist, news anchor, cartoonist, author, and novelist. For 10 years, Jake Tapper has hosted a nightly news program, all the while finding time and inspiration to scribble a different kind of story into his notebook, a series of novels. The new one, All the Demons Are Here, begins in 1977 in Butte, Montana, in a barroom brawl that introduces a young man named Ike, AWOL from the Marine Corps, raising hell alongside the crew of famed stuntman impresario Evil Knievel. All the while, Ike's coming to terms with a mysterious incident that happened to him in Lebanon. His sister, Lucy, is an idealist, a reporter in Washington, D.C., working hard for a right-leaning tabloid and following a string of murders, doing her absolute best to educate and enlighten as the best as best the job and overbearing owners of that paper will allow. Ike and Lucy's father, Charlie Martyr, is a United States senator, the kind who lunches in the Senate dining room with the likes of a, quote, young Jack Danforth and Dick Luger, Robert the King of Porkbird, Bob Woodbird, Woodward, and Carl Bernstein are all floating somewhere in the background. Jake Tapper, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks so much uh, for having me, John and John. How much fun was it to write this novel? It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, I was a lot. So I, I, this is the third in a series of books. You don't have to read them all to understand them. They, they're all standalone. But the first one takes place in the 50s, the second one in the 60s. This one is the first one I was alive for. I was eight years old in 1977. But what was fun about it is I don't remember a ton from when I was eight years old. I don't remember most of what was going on in the world. Um, Obviously, some of it was being kept from me, like uh, the Son of Sam murders. Uh, and uh, and some of it I just wasn't interested in, like Jimmy Carter's inauguration. So what was interesting was was allowing myself to see the world that I was in as an adult. Uh, and what a wild time it was. I mean, in January 1977, stuntman Evil Knievel, who was this huge celebrity at the time, literally tries to jump over sharks in his on his motorcycle this is eight or nine months before Fonz does it uh in the uh, jump the shark vernacular uh all the other things that happen are you couldn't even invent them i mean the jimmy carter inauguration the son of sam murders the rise of tabloid journalism elvis dies there's the studio 54 is is opens and the rise of disco and that whole celebrity discotheque cocaine world. There's the New York City blackout. There are UFO sightings all over the country. There's um, a real distrust of government given the Vietnam War and the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. So it ends up being this really, truly fascinating time that I had thought was just a really lame decade, <laughs> but, actually, but actually was a very wild and fascinating one, and with much more sex, drugs, and rock and roll than was going on in the 60s. <laughs> and so you love history, yes, I'm not mistaken. Correct. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I, love, I love history, and writing historical novels is a lot of fun because I get to like have my fictitious characters 
bump against actual people. Like Evil Knievel, as you know, is a, is a character in the book. Uh, Ike works for him, and and I got to play with learn. I didn't know anything about Evil Knievel. That his charm escaped me, eluded me when I was a kid. Um, but now I see how interesting a character he was. And it's clear you appreciate pop culture and its legacy too. And I'll get into that in a second. But I want to fixate for a second on your two big characters, brother and sister, Ike and Lucy. Where did Ike come from historically, culturally? Where did Lucy come from? So you got to go back to their parents, who are the main characters in the first two books. Uh, and they're also in the third book. They're also in All the Demons Are Here, but but they're not the main characters. Charlie, uh, who is a senator in the third book, he's a member of the House in the first and second book. Charlie is a World War II hero. Uh, Charlie uh, arrives in France a few days after D-Day and... Uh, is um, when he comes to Congress, one of the first things he does is he's trying to stop the government giving money to the company that made a defective gas mask that he had and and that uh, damaged his troops when he was uh, fighting in World War II. And uh, so Charlie is this army hero who has... Um, PTSD, although nobody has called it that in, in any of the books, because the term is, is as people called it like shell shock, battle fatigue, battle fatigue. Exactly. Those are the two shell shock and battle fatigue. So when he's self-medicating with booze, um, Ike is his son. Uh, Charlie, Charlie w- um, loved President Eisenhower, loved him when he was General Eisenhower, but then also as President Eisenhower and his politics are he's a he's a an Eisenhower Republican. And so he has a son named Dwight and Dwight is mentioned in the second book by the third book. When he's a main character, his he is now Ike. His nickname is now Ike. Uh, and actually uh, I didn't think to explain it, but uh, some um, foreign readers, some non-American readers asked me why he was Dwight. And now he's Ike. And I said, well, cause of Eisenhower, but okay, never mind. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize that was going to be- let him do a little bit of work. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's okay. Um, but in any case, so Ike is, uh, Ike's an AWOL Marine and Ike in many ways is representative of the disillusionment that so many people felt, uh, with the government in 1977. And also I think today, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of common threads. I think people are mistrusting of the government. And certainly it's being an Iraq or Afghanistan veteran is is a much, I hope, better experience than being a Vietnam veteran, given how horribly those those poor guys were treated. Um, but there is there are there are still some common themes. You roll all of these themes into these two main characters who drive the story, and this is the third edition of a three-novel series thus far, maybe more to come. But for your enthusiasm infusing real history, hard history, and cultural, pop cultural history, I thought of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I wonder, Jake, what was your goal in writing this book? Well, first of all, I love that movie. And if you haven't, I recommend reading Tarantino's novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it, which is not just, it's not actually the plot of the movie. It's basically everything he cut from the movie, <laughs> all the backstory and everything that just fills you in more on the characters and, and, and their lives. Uh, so if you, like the, if you like the movie, I do recommend the book. And if you're an audiobook guy, here I am 
selling a different book. Um, <laughs> if you're an audiobook guy, Jennifer Jason Lee reads the audiobook and she does fantastic. Read okay, it's fantastic. Um, well, he was provide he was having fun with the era, but he was off also um, uh, providing an alternate history. Uh, I was um, I was doing some of the same stuff, uh, but. I mean, I have Evil Knievel running for president in mind, kind of like a, as, a, as a PR stunt more than anything else. Um, but uh, I was trying to talk a little bit more. I don't think Tarantino was looking for parallels. I think he was just telling – he was just spinning a yarn. One of the mm -hmm. things that you know, I think – when I read history, you know, people always say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And when I – do the research for these books and I, and I, and I hear the rhyming, whether it's Joe McCarthy in the fifties or, or, um, or evil Knievel today or evil Knievel in the seventies, uh, I hear the rhyming and I try to explore some of those topics. For instance, um, tabloid journalism becoming a big subject becoming a big part of American life in 1977 because of son of Sam. There's a direct line from that to, uh, the tabloid, the, the both Rupert Murdoch's influence on our culture through Fox and the New York Post, et cetera, today, but also just through the tabloidization of American media, of the of the hunt for for clicks and for viewers and for listeners and for readers that uh, has the media today acting a little differently than it did in the early seventies. And people have been saying, people who are reading this book, I'm noticing are are seeing echoes uh, in modern day story about media, about politics in, in what you created of 1977. But I'm still wondering, as we think to the beginning of all the different roles, all the different hats you wear, how do you write? Well, when I have a writing project, um, I'm very uh, focused. And look, I was I was the kid in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade that that, you know, had an assignment book and if I had a test in a week that I was worried about, you know, wrote in the assignment book study for history test on every day, just like it <laughs> made myself do it. Um, I just learned how to do that. Uh, not that I, you know, was getting straight A's, you know, it, it necessarily, but learning how to regiment my time was, was a part of my life. And so when I have a writing project, I have a I have a way of doing this. I spend a lot of time researching. Then I come up with the outline. Then I divide the outline into chapters. And then I make myself write every day for at least 15 minutes a day. Um, and usually it's in the morning uh, after my wife takes the kids to school. I'll have a good hour before I have to focus on my day job um, at CNN. And, uh, and, but if you have, I mean, everybody can find 15 minutes in a day. And if that's all you have time for by the end of the week, that's an hour 45, that's two or three pages. And it's just, you know, it's just what works for me. Um, but when people like, I wrote a novel when I was in my twenties and then I, you know, I, I, it never got published, but I got an agent out of it. But then I started focusing more on nonfiction because, uh, it's easier to get published writing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then next thing I knew, 20 years had passed, uh, and I hadn't written any fiction in that 20 years. Uh, so I don't do that anymore. I make myself sit down and write it because that's 20 years. I mean, I, I'm not saying there are great American novels that could have been written. Maybe 
I needed that 20 years to like realize that I should be right. You know, that it was much more important to be, I, I don't know about you guys, but like what I wrote in my twenties was very much just about me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm right not writing about me anymore. I'm not that interesting. I'm writing about, you know, evil can evil and tabloid journalism and, you know, issues and, and characters that I think are interesting. But if, you know, but that is 20 years I could have been writing, but because I didn't make myself do it, I didn't do it. There's something serious at work underneath these things. And I was trying to pick the thread. Of course, we're talking with Jake Tapper today. All the demons are here. His new novel, thriller, politics, pop culture. It's a fantastic ride. But as fun as these books are, this and one in particular, there is a theme maybe. Let me read the titles. The Hellfire Club. <laughs> the Devil May Dance. All the Demons Are Here. Something you cribbed from The Tempest. It's good titling, but there's more than a passing interest in something serious too, I'm sensing. Uh, is it an interest in life and death, Jake? And is that what sent you to Afghanistan in 09, 10? Um, I, I think it's more, uh, well, I, I think it was more organic than that. First of all, I didn't write the first book knowing that I was going to get to write a second, uh, much less a third. And the first book was just called The Hellfire Club because there was an actual Hellfire Club in the UK in the 18th century, this debaucherous group of elites that had orgies and, you know, Benjamin Franklin visited there. And the, one of the premises of the first book is what if the actual, what if the original Hellfire Club actually had come to America and the elites were, you know, joined it there. Um, so uh, that's where that came from. And then The Devil May Dance, the second book is about it's about dancing with the devil. It's about getting into bed with bad people for some reason that you want to. It's about, you know, JFK getting into bed with Sinatra. It's about Sinatra getting into bed with the mob. It's about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So then for the third book, I mean, I just obviously I had set the table. I had to do something demonic uh, and I didn't know what I didn't know what it was going to be. But uh, but then, yeah, that line from The Tempest jumped out at me. And also just the, which which set kind of the table for the, the climax of the book, which like the temp, like the beginning of The Tempest takes place during a storm. Uh, uh, and I want to I'll leave it at there. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Afghanistan twice, once with President Obama, which was not a particularly embedded uh, experience. Um, uh, and then second and then went another time for, I forget, like a week or a week and a half, something like that, uh, where I was embedded. And that I did because um, I had heard this story uh in october 2009 about the uh about combat outpost keating about about this outpost that was one morning surrounded by it's like 50 guys are there or so and one morning they wake up at the crack of dawn and they're being attacked by like three or four hundred taliban and eight guys were killed eight americans were killed that more that day the deadliest day for the u.s and afghanistan uh that year and everybody was responding like, why would you put a outpost at the bottom of three steep mountains in Taliban territory, which is a good question. Uh, and I just kind of waited as a news consumer for somebody to answer the question and they never did. And it just kind of set me on this journey to find out why. And then I wanted to write a book about the battle. And then it just became this project that ended up being a, the history of combat outpost Keating this book called The Outpost, 
that ended up just being a story of Vietnam. I'm sorry. Look, there I go. Story of Afghanistan. I'll get there. It's easy to confuse. The Not the first sometimes. one to make that mistake, <laughs> yeah. and I won't be the no. last. Uh, but 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 uh, the history of Afghanistan by looking at this outpost. You know, going in with good intentions and everything right. goes horribly wrong. And it's a, and it's uh, you know. I don't know if the right word is ironically, tragically is probably the best word as, you know, the end of the cop is not that dissimilar from how the Afghanistan war ended. It's just packed everything up and went home and it's like it was never there. Left the know? ammo, left and, some gear. Yeah. Left a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. The, the, yeah. I think that's partially why, why it clicks with people is it's, it's obviously it's a, it's a metaphor for the war writ large. Yeah. I mean, and, and just also, I mean, it's also a, a, it's kind of a true, I mean, for anybody interested in counterinsurgency uh, and just the, and the theory of coin, it's kind of just a case study in coin. I mean, it's just like the, the, it was right. during the 2006 to 2009 is when coin was fully operational. Uh, and there were some guys, uh, some officers really committed to it and making it work. I gave a copy to, I interviewed Governor DeSantis the other day, uh, and he's a Navy JAG and he writes about coin in his memoir. I kind of think he's skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. And I understand why uh, I, it, and I told him it was kind of a case study in coin if he's interested. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I, w- the origin of the story is that I first heard about it when I was sitting in the maternity ward uh, of the hospital with my wife and I was holding our n- very newborn son. Uh, Jack was born October 2nd and cop Keating fell on October 3rd. And, it, and there was something just poignant in the moment of me holding my son, hearing about eight other sons taken from this earth and young men some like 18, 19 years old. And there was just something poignant in the moment. I was a White House correspondent. So I had been reporting on Afghanistan and, and debates over Afghanistan and troop numbers because it was Obama's first year. And, you know, I think he sent like by the end of 2010, I think there were like maybe he'd sent like 100,000 Americans there. It was, he'd really surged troops to Afghanistan at, at some point. Um, but... Uh, and I wanted to go deeper than I than I had been, and I think it, I think the whole experience made me a much um, less glib uh, person and a much less glib journalist. Like learning about these people and their stories. John Krakow recalled the book a mind-boggling, all true, all too true story of heroism, hubris, failed strategy, and heartbreaking sacrifice. Uh, a major writer for many of us who served. You went seven hundred pages. On that one, you you well, a lot of that's footnotes. I don't scare people away. A lot of that's footnotes and endnotes. And and, and uh, I'll say it's five hundred. I say note, it's five hundred. A note to readers: Jake has footnotes, and all the demons are here too. An interesting twist. That's but not you, me. That's Lucy. Lucy. Okay, has sorry, footnotes. sorry, Lucy. That's a character. Yeah. That's a character trait of Lucy's. She has. Ike doesn't have footnotes. And for the and for the listeners, a young idealistic journalist in Washington D.C. Named, named Lucy. But you won a lot of respect from those of us who were in uniform for that book because you went into the lives, the personal lives of the people who were fighting in Afghanistan. I wonder what lingers for you today about that story. I just still think about them all the time. I just still, I mean, there there are scenes in that book that I was not there for, but that I picture I've pictured in my head so many times. When uh, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Fenty's helicopter goes down in 06 and um, he uh, he it, it ten, and 10 people are killed in this helicopter crash. And as I don't need to tell you guys or your listeners, I mean, the terrain in Afghanistan 
probably even deadlier than the Taliban in a lot of ways. Um, just how tough it is to exist or drive an LMTV or whatever in on, on these ancient mountains. But I just I always think about when the helicopter goes down and um, this Major Timmons disobeys orders and goes outside of protocol and climbs up the mountain, gets on a sat phone to call his wife, Gretchen, who's um, out of town there. I think they're at Fort Drum, um, the guys in 371 Cav. They're at Fort Drum. And so Joe Fenty's uh, wife was, I forget the name of it, but she was the um, the family readiness. What is it called? The family readiness person. You used to call him Fro, family readiness officer. Yeah, so her, she's, the, she's, the, she's the head wife in the unit. And she's there for all the other... Uh, I would say spouses, but it's just they're all wives. So um, it's 2006. And uh, Gret- uh, Kristen Fenty, Joe's wife, is, is she's the one in charge, but she's about to need somebody. So Major Timmons calls his wife, Gretchen, who is in Pennsylvania and says, you need to Joe just got killed. You need to you need to go back to Fort Drum right now and be there for Kristen. And so she gets in her car. She's at her, her in-laws, I guess, gets in her car, parks, you know. Gets in her car, drives to Fort Drum, parks, rushes to Kristen's house on the base, and Kristen hasn't been told yet. And so Gretchen Timmons shows up to be there for Kristen, and, and Kristen Fenty doesn't know that her husband's been killed yet. And just the way that both Kristen and Gretchen told me the story, I feel like I was there. I can picture the house. I can picture the screen door finally opening at the end. And I mean, it's just just all of these scenes are in my head um, because they were told to me first person by the people and uh, they're just heartbreaking. I just, I, I, you know, I live with them. Is there enough of that type of reporting in war or in war journalism? Do you think, I mean, you were a war journalist for a time, uh, a different experience before and after that. Uh, Do you have any critique of war journalism or any pointers? My critique is for the Pentagon, not for war journalism. I think, I mean, I read a lot of amazing war journalism um, all the time. Uh, my critique is that the Pentagon is makes it difficult, uh, makes it really tough to tell these stories. Um, unnecessarily so. I'm working on a nonfiction book now about something else that has to do with the military, has to do with the death of two U.S. service members. But it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of book. And I just heard from CENTCOM today about my FOIA request from like a month or two ago. And I'm in the queue. I should get a response in about two years. <laughs> Literally. That's what they told me. They gave me the queue now. You're, oh, you're fast-tracked. Yeah. yeah. 3,722 or whatever it was. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? That's about two years. All right. I'm not going to be writing this book in two years. It's going to be published in two years. Like, I, what do you, you know, and do I think... Oh, they're so understaffed. and da, da. No, I don't. I think that the bureaucracy makes it all impossible. I mean, I, th- I think all these people are good people and they're following orders. I just think there is just a wall of bureaucracy. And because, I don't know, they don't want, I, they don't want the stories told. I, whatever it is, I don't know. If, I, I, I'm not saying I should be fast-tracked. I mean, I'm, I, I'm fine waiting in line. But I, don't, I just don't believe that... That's normal. I just, I just don't. I, I, I just think that sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll joke about um, when lawyers 
like inter intervene in when I'm working on a story or the news desk intervenes when I'm working on a story. And I refer to them as the, the office of news prevention. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what, I mean, they're doing their jobs. I mean, like, I'm glad they're there and whatever, but like, Oh, what does the office of news prevention have to say? But this really is like a, the department of news prevention. Like, yeah, yeah. Most, most stories that, that journalists want to tell are not like how the Pentagon screwed something up. Although there are certainly plenty of those stories to tell. It's, it's about heroes and missions and, you know, yeah. just bring, you know, opening eyes of the 99% of us who have never served. And I just, I find it baffling that a Pentagon that is so advanced when it comes to like sending up an electronic object to spy on somebody, you know, 6,000 miles away uh, has such a rudimentary take on communication. And so Pentagon, if you're out there listening, we have a friend, his name is Jake. He's on a deadline. <laughs> if there's any way you can help our friend Jake meet his deadline, uh, we'd appreciate right. it. You, no, you never know who's you never know who's listening to the Hot Wash podcast. I don't, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't want. By the way, I don't. I don't want special treatment. I want them to like join the the twentieth, if not the twenty first century. Right. Uh, right. You know, they're like they're like at Pony Express levels, kind of like when dealing with with uh, how the media works. And look, I get people. You know, you have to get permission from this, and you have to make sure there's nothing sensitive. Uh, yeah. all, first of all, we're not in Afghanistan anymore, so I don't know what sensitive information there could be. You know how overclassified everything is. But, right uh, so connect that to what's happening in Ukraine right now. And to be clear, I, I feel like Russian actions have been unconscionable. Uh, the scenes that we see, the stories that we hear from places like Bakhmut and, you know, uh, Buka, et cetera, are incredibly moving how do you cover it as a journalist? And and the Ukrainians, I mean, to their credit, I think have been very successful in shaping their own narrative in the West because, quite frankly, their lives depend on it. It depends on financial support and, and uh, for money and material. How do you cover a war like that? How do you not get shaped unintentionally by uh, the tragedy of it? And, and still be able to report in a way that doesn't necessarily lead in, in, the, in the other direction. So I went to Ukraine in April 2022. I loved doing it. I love reporting on the road. I mean, I hate being away from my family and it's not fun to be in a war zone, but I, I loved uh, doing it. And I mean, I just think that the way you do it if you, is if you can, you have reporters on the ground there. And if you can, you go there yourself also. And it's just incredibly important. Um, you know, we have right now, uh, Alex Marquardt is on the ground and uh, he's on, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what part of the country he's in, but you know, he's, he's there, he's doing important stories. And we, we're constantly, Aaron Burnett was there a few weeks ago. We're just constantly there. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to go back. Uh, when, you know, when it's, when it's right, I wanted to go back for the, uh, one year anniversary of the, of the invasion. And, um, I wasn't, uh, allowed to, um, but I just think going there is so important for, for journalists, um, especially, uh, TV journalists to show, to show what's going on. Um, 
because you can only really understand it if you see it, right? I mean, like I went to a a town, I think it was Borodyanka, because Bucha had already been covered and in terms of all the war crimes and horrifying scenes there. And so I went to a different town and it was, you know, you just see the devastation of, you know, a, a town that just looks like, a, I mean, it could have been, it reminded me of like Atlantic City, just like high sky, you know, high skyscrapers and just seeing the devastation. Of, but now, normal. yeah, and the, just workers, just regular folk digging through rubble, uh, finding dolls and photo albums. And, you know, there's just nothing like. There's just nothing like the experience. And then you see like these people are just, they're just people and like, they're just being shelled by the Russians. And it's just whatever you think of, you know, Zelensky or corruption in Ukraine, which is obviously a very real thing and, and all that. These are just innocent people who are being invaded by an oppressor. And it's, it really is as complicated as life can be. It, it really is that simple. I want to cap this discussion of Jake Tapper's new novel, All the Demons Are Here, with a Proust-like questionnaire. Are you game for this? Yeah, so this is like a, this like a, it's like a speed round. Is that right? Well, in the spirit of all the pop culture references in the history, I want to tip my hat to the late James Lipton. Nice. At Inside the Actors Studio, the old guard at Vanity Fair. Yes. I've ginned, I've ginned up nine questions that I, Got it. I, I I hope might get to this core of something. Here we go. Hit me. Jake Tapper, what is your favorite occupation? Journalist. What is your favorite movie about Washington, D.C.? Oh, All the President's Men. Th that is a correct answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you most like to live? Oh, um, Santa Monica. Most like to visit? Ooh, that's like someplace I've never been before. Um, I, uh, I haven't really ever done... Hawaii. I've never like I like uh, I've, I've like gone there like with Obama when he was president, but I've never okay. really gone to Hawaii. So Hawaii. Okay. We'll put that oh no 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 no! I take it back. Fiji, Fiji. I want to do Fiji. <laughs> okay. Dream yeah, big. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this yeah is, yeah. This why is not? Your first exactly. question why, yeah. Hawaii. Okay. Hawaii. Mm -hmm. That's like New Jersey compared to <laughs> Fiji. Okay. Yeah. Number five. Which do you prefer, Hollywood or Washington D.C.? Oh, Washington D.C. Why? Smarter. Your favorite hero from fiction? Oh, um, James Bond. <laughs> oh, okay. Ian Fleming, good choice. Yeah, I still have the giant James Bond Diamonds Are Forever poster that I had in my bachelor apartment. I don't know where my wife put it. but <laughs> There's no judgment. There's no judgment here. It's, it's in Italian. Giant in Italian. Oh Beautiful. Yeah. How could you not feature that? Worse for the country. Afghanistan or Vietnam? Oh, boy. Wow. I'm going to say Vietnam. Why? Because uh, the lies were more blatant and the treatment of the veterans was horrible. And just the things that were done, like in terms of Agent Orange and Napalm were just, I think the generals who I've interviewed a bunch of the, we did a documentary about Afghanistan only ran once because the, the topic is such a bummer. Um, but, you know, I interviewed a bunch of these guys, Dunford and Allen, and they're all flawed, but none of them are Westmoreland. None of them are McNamara, you know? Hmm. We betrayed our allies in secret in Vietnam, but publicly in Afghanistan, that's what it guessed 
recently told us. Oh, that's uh, wise and depressing. Number eight. The book I most hope to be remembered for is The Outpost. It's it's not just the it's not just the book. It is the single piece of journalism I am proudest proudest hmm. of. Um, more than any GIF I have created, more than any viral video, it is the single thing I I I, I hope if if my obit is only one sentence long, I hope it mentions the outpost. Last one, and you can't say Ike Martyr from the new novel. If not yourself, who would you be? You mean like a real person? Fiction, nonfiction. You write both. Dream big, Jake. Dream big. If I could be anybody, boy, that's a that's a that's a real stumper. I mean, I guess Superman, right? I mean, you have to. <laughs> I mean, don't you don't you have to be? Don't you have to go with Superman? I mean, you could like stop wars. I mean, you can like. I mean, you could like turn. You could reverse time. I mean, I, it just seems like an obvious one, but I, I can't think. I mean, I guess a perhaps a very lonely life. That's his choice. That you know, I don't buy. That's his own self pity. That's crazy. <laughs> Lois loves him. <laughs> All right. I think we have it there. Uh, it turns out that Jake Tapper is actually not a journalist. He's a fiction writer who does journalism. Uh, he, uh, he And he would be Superman, but very well adjusted and in a stable long term. I mean, therapists are right there. Like, it's not like you work through it, man. Work through it. <laughs> the new novel is All the Demons Are Here. We've got a review coming out by fiction writer Brett Allen soon. Look for that on the website. The book's out across the country and in your local airport if you're flying. Jake Tapper, thank you for joining Hot Wash. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.